morning and uh, to hear the uh, songs uh, being sung uh, coming at us. The, I, one time I, I had to stop and just listen, and it's an amazing thing. If you could be up here and hear all of your voices coming in this direction, that would be, you would see what I'm talking about. But I appreciate uh, the the good singing for this morning. Turn with me to John chapter 1. We're going to continue our study in uh, John's Gospel. Begin reading at verse 35, and I'll read through 42. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come. And you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The word Eureka is a term of exclamation that may not be widely used today, but among the older generation, the word Eureka was used quite often as a term of triumph on discovering or solving something. Uh, It literally means I have found it or I have found the thing. It's a word of elation at the discovery of something. I can only imagine Andrew and John must have been shouting Eureka in their own native tongue as they realized that they had found the Messiah, the King of Kings. Now, as I said last week, and for those of you that are visiting with us today, we are, we are in a verse by verse study of the Gospel of John. And we have seen that John the Baptist uh, is on the scene in this first chapter as a major character. And now we see, we saw John's testimony of Christ as he pointed to to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And then now we see the disciples' testimony. And we're centering our thoughts on Andrew in this particular passage through verse 42 because Andrew seems to be a central figure in this narrative, 
John was, is more of a silent figure. As we said last week, John, John never mentions himself by name, but often calls himself the other disciple or the disciple that Jesus loved or some other uh, thing to, to speak of himself, but rather not name himself. And so we center our thoughts on Andrew. And last week we looked at two parts of this. The first thing we saw last week was Andrew's encounter of Jesus. These two disciples, Andrew being one of them, heard John say, Behold the Lamb of God. John wanted them to pay close attention to Jesus, who was the one he came to introduce to, to make the way known for. At Jesus' kind invitation, they ended up following him where he was staying to get acquainted with him and to be exposed to his teaching. <clears throat> this was not the formal call of Andrew and John as apostles or disciples, but that happened in Matthew chapter 4 as we looked at last week. But this is more of an introduction to Jesus for them. So Andrew encountered Jesus. Second, we saw Andrew's eagerness to know Jesus. Both of these disciples were seekers of God's truth. And they heard and saw that truth personified in Jesus Christ. So they followed him to where he was staying They saw who he was. They realized he was the Messiah. We see the same thing over and over in this gospel. Chapter 16, verse 30. Chapter 18, verse 4. The disciples are constantly, are constantly saying, you are the Christ, the Son of God. You are the Savior of the world. So Jesus turns and asks them, not who do you seek or whom are you seeking? But what do you seek? This is the question of all of life. What do you seek? What are you looking for? Is that not something that all of us ponder in our own minds and hearts? What are we looking for in life? It's the most basic question for anyone. People seek all kinds of things. And the ultimate goal of their seeking is to find something that will make them happy and fulfilled. It could be security they seek or power or prestige or or a career or peace or monetary gain, ease. These things are not evil in and of themselves, but they are a very low aim To what human beings need in life. So Jesus challenges their motives. Not who are you seeking, but what? What are you looking for? He challenged their motives, but he knew their hearts. He knew that God had divinely called them. That they were genuine seekers. What they desired was an uninterrupted 
conversation and learning session from Jesus, their Messiah. They wanted to hear from the Messiah. This was a milestone in the in this event and in the life of Andrew and John. And John records the details that they stayed with Jesus that day. It was about the it was about four o'clock in the afternoon. The day was almost spent. The new day would have been would have been starting at six at six o'clock. And so they stayed with Jesus, I think, through the night. Travelers often sought shelter at the end of the day before it got dark. And so Instead of going to find shelter on their own, they just stayed where Jesus was. And I can only imagine that they talked into the, into the wee hours of the night, listening to him tell of the things of God and of God's plan of salvation for mankind. Can you, can you only, can you imagine the conversation that evening? As they sat maybe around a fire, Listening to Jesus tell about the things of God and their hearts were burning inside like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. As he divulged to them all of the things that God had planned to do. God's plan of redemption was coming to pass. And they were on a front row seat. Now, when these two heard John say, Behold the Lamb of God, it, John gives us some more details. <clears throat> he says one of the two was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Andrew is now named as one of the two disciples. And we see that he is Peter's brother. Why does he name him as Peter's brother? Peter is probably the most well-known disciple in all of the New Testament. Maybe, his name may be the most well-known name in all of the Bible, other outside of the Lord Jesus himself. So the two were called to follow Jesus at the same time. I'm talking about Andrew and Peter here. Matthew chapter 4 verse 18, while they were walking by this, while he was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter and Andrew, his brother casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. So we see Andrew and Peter working together at the time that he called them to follow him as his disciples and as his apostles. Matthew chapter 10 verse 2 names Andrew as one of the twelve apostles. In fact, he names Andrew as the second in order of the apostles. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon Peter, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. Verse 44 of chapter 1 of John 1 tells us that they were from the city of Bethsaida, which is on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. So that brings us to the third thing we see in Andrew's uh, testimony of Christ. And that is 
Andrew's express concern for his brother. His express concern for his brother. This is one of the things that God does to people when they come to salvation. Is they automatically and inherently have a desire to see other people saved. Particularly people of their own family. We can see the desire in Andrew's heart to make Jesus known as the Messiah, the one who would take away sin from his people. But Andrew had been listening to John, and John had said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So we know that Andrew understood that there was more to salvation than just the Jewish nation. Although at this particular time, it was only the Jew that was privy to the Messiah's coming. We, we track Andrew's walk with Jesus and there's at least one place where we see that Andrew exhibits The proper evangelical or evangelistic understanding of salvation for the world at large. Turn with me to John chapter 12 quickly. Notice verse, verses 20 and 21. John chapter 12 verses 20 and 21. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast, were some Greeks or some Gentiles. These people went up to worship at the feast. So these Gentiles came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, same place that Andrew and Peter were from, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Wow. You could stop right there for a while, couldn't you? Nobody says that. Listen to me carefully. Nobody says that unless the Spirit of God is working in their hearts to desire it. Because let me tell you what the world is doing at large. They are running away from Jesus as far as they can get. I remember seeing Ray Comfort witnessing to a fellow on a pier in California. And he says, do you know who, who Jesus Christ is? And he said, yes, and I'm trying to get away from him as fast as I can. Well, at least that's honest. These Greeks, God was drawing these Greeks. We want to see Jesus. You're his disciple. We want to see him. Notice the rest of it. Philip went, and who did he tell? He told Andrew. Now, Philip obviously knew Andrew from... Bethsaida, where they lived. So he took Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So Jesus answers their query by referencing his death as the atonement for sins, for the sins of all who will take up their cross and follow him. We see that in verses 23 through 26 of that same chapter in chapter 12. In bringing this matter to Jesus, both Andrew and Philip were displaying a heart of concern for the salvation of other men other than Jews. 
which was amazing at the time. You remember in Acts chapter 10 when God told Peter to rise up and kill the unclean things and eat them? And Peter said, no, <laughs> not doing that. Took three times, didn't it? Finally, Peter said, okay, Lord. And he ended up in the house of Cornelius, a Gentile. And the gospel was opened up to the Gentile people. And so they understood that the intention of God was to save all kinds of people. That had been prophesied from before by the prophets. It was clearly indicated by Jesus in his parables. And I'll give you another clear example of that. Turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 13. We find here in Matthew 13 a parable that Jesus gives. He is speaking in parables throughout this chapter. He's talked about the parable of the sower. He's talked about the parable of the weeds, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the hidden treasure and of the the pearl of great price. And in chapter uh, in, in verse 47, he speaks about the parable of the net. And he's trying to teach his disciples in this parable that the gospel is wider and greater than just the Jews. Notice, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of what? Every kind. Every kind. And when it was full, the men drew it to a shore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad ones. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This parable gives us a clear understanding of God's intention in salvation. God intends to save people. Not all people, as the universalist would say, but many people of all kinds, of all sizes, of all nationalities, of all colors, of all languages and tribes and nations. The net is go, is, goes out. And that net is the gospel. It is the gospel of the kingdom that surrounds people. The Messiah would die for, for all of those who would believe the message of His death and resurrection. But in that net, there are many that will be thrown away into everlasting judgment. John MacArthur writes of this passage, Men move about within that net as if they were forever free. It may touch them from time to time, as it were, startling them, but they quickly swim away thinking they have escaped, not realizing that they are completely, inescapably encompassed in God's sovereign plan. The invisible web of God's judgment encroaches on every human being just as that net 
that of the dragnet encroaches on the fish. Most men do not perceive the kingdom. They do not see God working in the world. They may be briefly moved by the grace of the gospel or frightened by the threat of judgment. But they soon return to their old ways, thinking and living, oblivious to the things of eternity. But when a man's day is over and Christ returns to set up his glorious kingdom, then judgment will come. This is what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples. That the gospel is the net and you throw the net and you don't know what fish will be kept and what fish will be thrown away. That is God's business. We can see the level of concern in Andrew's heart. Because it says he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. What a passage. The word first in that has been a bit confusing. For some, it has the idea of he dropped everything right at that moment that he realized Christ was the Messiah. And went running to find his brother Peter to tell him. I don't think that's what it means at all. I think the word first indicates that he stayed the night with Jesus and first thing the next morning he set out to find his brother. And I think probably John did the same thing. So no sooner had Andrew heard of God's plan to save sinners that he ran and found his brother Peter and told him. And whatever Jesus told them, coupled with John the Baptist's testimony, convinced them that Jesus was indeed the true Messiah that they had been waiting for for so long. Andrew was eager to tell what he had witnessed. I remember, I remember what it was like. On the night that I was saved, the next day I just could not hardly Wait to tell people what had happened to me. They were not impressed. I quickly found that they didn't care. And I quickly found that my telling, my testimony of what Christ had done in my life would have to be told over and over And over again in a hundred different ways for them to see the truth of the gospel and their lost condition. He followed the pattern of John the Baptist in telling or in doing this, going to find his brother. Notice the three points in that. Number one, he did not attract attention to himself. He learned humility from John the Baptist. Many see humility in our time as a sign of weakness. Humility is not a sign of weakness. In fact, humility is an extremely great strength. One of the strongest traits a person can exhibit. 
Number two, he gave a verbal witness of who Jesus was. It is not enough for people to know the name Jesus as a historical figure. They must know who he is. They must know what he has done and what he is going to do. That he is the divine son of the heavenly father who came as a substitute for sinners. And when they understand that, then the power of salvation is found in the name of Jesus. Number three, the verbal witness of Andrew was so that people would believe and in believing that they would have life through his name. Matthew twelve twenty one, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. A quote from Isaiah. Luke 24, repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. John twenty thirty one, that believing you may have life in his name. Andrew began right where he should have begun. He began with his own family and then worked outward. He took the news of the Messiah to Peter, his brother. This is the distinguishing act of the life of Andrew, the disciple of Jesus. That he found his brother and brought him to Christ. He was concerned about the soul of his brother. I have people all the time coming to me with concern about their loved ones, their children, their grandchildren, their their brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers. And rightly so. I remember very clearly after I was saved, I began to get a very deep burden for my sister. She's 10 years younger, uh, almost 10 years younger than I am. And so I sat down and wrote a letter to her. Telling her in the letter everything that had happened to me. At that time, I was only about 19 years old. So she was still a young girl. I didn't realize the impact that letter would have. Until years later, I was in my 60s. I was in North Carolina visiting And she comes to me with that letter. She'd kept it all those years. You don't know what impact your testimony, your witness for Christ is going to have. The New Testament is full of the name and character and works of Peter. He is without doubt the first among the apostles and one of, if not if not the most well-known of Bible characters. Plummer writes in his commentary, In church history, St. Peter is everything, and St. Andrew is nothing. But would there have been an Apostle Peter without Andrew? Andrew did a great work by bringing Peter to Jesus. The point is here, To tell people about Jesus and his power to save and his power to forgive sins and then leave the rest to God. You don't have to, you don't have to coerce them. You don't have to parrot prayers for them. All you have to do is tell them. That's all you have to do. 
And then God does the rest. You say, but you can't leave them alone. Oh, you can't? When Philip met the eunuch on the road and preached to him Jesus from Isaiah's prophecy. And when he was baptized, the Spirit caught Philip away. He was gone. And that man went and took the gospel to Alexandria in Africa. We do not know what will become of those. Peter, Andrew would have had absolutely no idea what Peter would become as an apostle of Christ. So you don't know where your, your witness of the gospel will go either. Even before the Lord Jesus, Donald Gray Barnhouse writes this, even before the Lord Jesus told his disciples that he would make them fishers of men, Andrew witnessed to his brother and landed the big fisherman, Simon Peter. Wow, what a catch. I want you to notice in the text the word found. I found this really very fascinating. The word found speaks of spiritual or intellectual discovery by observing or by investigating or by reflecting on something. So, it it gives the idea that Andrew may not have known exactly where Peter was, and so he searched for him. He investigated. Maybe you can see him running into the house where they lived and Peter wasn't there. And he's asking, do you know where Peter is? It gives us a, this is called a vivid, dramatic present tense. This word found. And what it does is it creates the story for us and sees the story moving from one character to the next in dramatic form. Notice it. Follow it. Andrew found Peter. The next day in verse 43, Jesus found Philip. Then Philip found Nathanael in verse 45. And when he found Nathanael, he told him that they had found the Messiah. The words used over and over again to draw in our minds this this. Sequence of the gospel moving from one person to the next to the next. And that's exactly how the gospel works. We can see the tentacles of the gospel message moving from person to person. It is how the church began to grow. Taking the news from one to the next. And that's the way it still grows today. I have people tell me all the time who've come here, they say, oh, I heard about your church from so-and-so. And I wanted to come and see for myself. And that's the way it ought to be. The other thing to notice here is the word, plural word, we, in verse 41. We, we have found the Messiah. Of course, that speaks that, that says that he, John is with him. 
It's significant because it holds the Jewish tradition that is based upon two or three witnesses to establish truth. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 19 verse 15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall the charge be established. This was God's command to Moses for people who got themselves into trouble or broke the law and they were turned in for it, that there had to be at least two witnesses or three witnesses to establish the facts. That's Deuteronomy 19.15 sets the precedent. For the Jewish mind in in bringing about truth of knowing what's true and what's not. And it pertains to matters of the church as well. Matthew 18, 16, speaking of the brother who has sinned, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. We find the same principle in 2 Corinthians 13, 1, 1 Timothy 5, 19, that the Apostle Paul writes. The fact that both Andrew and John were convinced that Jesus was the Christ held credibility with Peter. They're both convinced. Peter cannot just say, oh, you're, you're dreaming this up. No, John was there. John heard him too. That was because the Jewish mindset was that the Messiah in Jewish thought would be the Son of God. We know that's true because when Jesus was questioned by the high priest in Matthew 26, he remained silent and the priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. They were looking for the Christ to be the Son of God. And when Jesus came along saying, I am the Son, I have come from the Father, they didn't believe Him. And Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And they wanted to kill Him. Instantly. In Mark chapter in Mark chapter uh, 14, verse 61, he asked, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed or the blessed one? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power. So from the beginning of Jewish history. The kings of Israel were considered to be God's anointed. We see that. When Saul was anointed, we see it when David was anointed. And so when the Jews spoke about their coming Messiah, they saw him as their king who would deliver them and establish the kingdom with the Jewish people. That's what they were looking for. Jesus' followers expected him to deliver them, but he had to explain to them that there was a cross to bear Before there was a crown to wear. 
And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Their finding of the Messiah and witnessing of him did not mean that they understood everything that the Messiahship entailed. But that understanding would grow, that understanding would grow over time as they were with him. Particularly after his resurrection, they began to see things that they had not understood before. As far as Andrew and John were concerned, they had found the king. They had found the Messiah. Like the shepherds at his birth, they wanted to tell others. It was within God's sovereign plan that Andrew would go and find Peter and bring him to Jesus. The unwritten part of this story is most likely that John went to find James and tell him. Can't you see them together? Next morning, I'm going to find Peter. i got to tell Peter about this. John said, yeah, I'm going to get, find James. And off he goes. Now, that's not written there. Except between the lines, maybe. However, it would appear that Andrew was not satisfied with simply telling the good news to Peter. It says he brought him to Jesus. That word brought means to take or to guide someone somewhere. I can almost see him grabbing Peter's arm saying, come on, I'm going to show you. I'll take you to him. I know where he's staying. Can't you envision the excitement, the energy in Andrew's voice and in his his, and in his body language as he takes hold of Peter and brings him to Jesus? I would I would ask. Do you have that kind of excitement and do I have it? And I'd have to say to you many times, I don't. Because we live in a world that is so cluttered and, and so jam-packed together with, it, with other things that we lose, we lose our, our vision, we lose our, our first love. We lose the fact that we've been redeemed by the King of Kings and, and how many people have I really told that? How many people have I let let know that? Does my family see that my life is now in Christ? We've found something that is of far greater value than anything this world can offer. William Barclay tells in his commentary on this passage about the 19th century agnostic uh, Aldous Huxley who once profoundly was moved by the gospel. He had been at a weekend house party of a friend, of some friends, and uh, Sunday morning rolled around and Huxley, all all the people were going to go to church and Huxley, being an agnostic, 
cared nothing about going to church. But he was interested to know about Jesus from these believers. And so not intending to go to church, he approached a man of the group who had a very simple but radiant faith in Christ. And he said to the man, suppose you don't go to church today, but instead you stay here with me and simply simply tell me about your Christian faith, what it means to you, why you're a Christian. The man replied to Huxley, oh, no, I, I couldn't do that. He said, uh, you could demolish my arguments in a minute. I'm not clever enough to argue with you. Huxley was a brilliant man. No, he said, I don't want to argue with you, Huxley said. I just want you to simply tell me what this Christ means to you. So the man agreed and he stayed back and told Huxley of his faith. And when he had finished, there were tears in the eyes of this brilliant agnostic. And he said to the man, I would give my right hand if only I could believe that. Ever had anybody say that to you? I've had people say that to me. I wish I could believe what you believe. I wish I had what you had. And I always tell them, you can if you'll repent of your sins and believe and follow Christ. What touched the heart? It wasn't arguments. I refuse to argue with people. There's, there's too little time to argue with people. It was the genuine faith of this man expressed by one who knew Jesus and was not ashamed to invite others to come to him. That's Andrew. That's you. That's me. If we will but put aside our own agendas and just tell what we know. Just tell what you know. This is what happened to me. And then make it all about Christ. Now it says in verse 42 that he brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, so you were Simon, the son of John, which indicates that Jesus knew who Peter was before Peter was introduced to him. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. We're going to talk about Peter next week. I'm going to do a little biographical on Peter's life in Scripture and how this, how this plays into what Andrew did as he brought Peter to Jesus. So that's verse 42 next week. Uh, probably is all we'll get to. And then we'll go on after that to Nathaniel, Philip and Nathaniel. I pray that God will use us in these last days. And I firmly believe 
that we are in the last days of the last days. I don't know how, how much longer the world can go, but it sure seems like that it is imploding on itself very quickly. But I do have some good news for you. This came, if you get mailings from John MacArthur, you would know this already if you read it. But he writes um, about the growing hostility in our culture as revealed throughout Scripture, that our loyalty is to the truth. Uh, and he says, the timeline, in, the, the timeline included with my last letter detailed how we have been fighting the battle for, the, for truth in, a, in the conflict with civil government as they attempted to usurp the headship of Christ over his church. I now have the privilege of writing to you with one more punctuating point to that timeline. And here it is. The city of Los Angeles has decided to drop all charges and agreed to pay all legal fees incurred due to the lawsuit against Grace Church last summer. This is a monumental victory. Isn't that good? So God has come to the rescue of Grace Church in California, and that is good news for all of us as we carry on the work of our Lord and the worship of our Lord without interruption. So God bless John MacArthur for fighting the battle. And God bless you if you're fighting it. And if you're not fighting it, I invite you to join his army. Enlist as his soldier. And follow him wherever he goes. And do whatever he says. Eternity weighs is weighing in the balance. All right. Brother Rolf, if you'll come, take prayer requests. Again, I want to welcome all of our visitors today.